0: Hello, and welcome to Akathisia Stories, a podcast co-production of MIST and Chicago's Studio C. MIST, the Medication Induced Suicide Prevention and Education Foundation in memory of Stuart Dolan, is a unique nonprofit organization dedicated to honoring the memory of Stuart and other victims of akathisia by raising awareness and educating the public about the dangers of akathisia. MIST aims to ensure that people suffering from akathisia's symptoms are accurately diagnosed so that needless deaths are prevented. The foundation advocates truth and disclosure, honesty in reporting, and legitimate drug trials. In this episode of Akathisia Stories, we hear from Chris Page, a licensed psychotherapist Chris had maintained a successful private therapy practice, working face to face with hundreds of clients over the years and taught multiple semesters of psychopathology to master's level students, teaching students how to diagnose disorders. In all that time, he writes, no one ever mentioned to be on the lookout for akathisia or even once uttered the word. When Chris started to take the antibiotic Cipro, he experienced insomnia and agitation.
1: So I called my primary and I said, look, could you just give me 20, or actually I asked for 10, one milligram just so I have something on hand if I needed to sleep. She gave me 20 because obviously she didn't view it as a dangerous drug or anything that you know she needed to be cautious with. And then it was, you know, like I said, a few months into that, just taking it every three or four days less than prescribed when I started to get the really bad adverse effects. Chronic apathy is unbearable. and. What I really needed was my family and friends to step up, and they didn't. I think I'm here for a reason, and that reason is to make a difference and prevent this from happening.
0: We'll have Chris's full story in a moment. Mist is pleased to start off 2021 with some exciting new endeavors and several in-depth projects that will come to fruition during the first quarter of this new year. Soon, medical professionals will be able to earn certified medical education units by taking a new MIST akathisia course specifically designed for doctors, pharmacists, nurses, and other medical specialties. MIST was also invited to contribute a chapter about akathisia to be included in an academic textbook about SSRI withdrawal, and will be releasing a new public health video that highlights what family members observed prior to their loved one's prescribed demise. The Foundation is exploring project-based learning collaborations with several universities and continues to present at virtual conferences in lieu of in-person conferences due to COVID-19. If your organization would like MIST to present, please reach out at mist.co, M-I-S-S-D Chris Page has been a licensed psychotherapist for the past 28 years. Highly skilled in treating trauma, Chris has been featured on Dateline NBC for his work with children of divorce, as well as in the national magazine Muses and Visionaries, in which he had his own column called On the Couch with Chris Page. I'll note that his Zoom audio is not ideal. If you'd find it helpful to read the transcript while listening, it's available from slash Chris Page Transcript. That's P A I G E. Here's Chris.
1: Acathesia is something that, even though I had taught years of psychopathology to master's level students and had practiced for decades, was something that I barely even knew about or had even heard about uh, until I got injured. Uh, By benzodiazepines,
0: and was the lucky recipient of severe akathisia for years. And what brought you to be on that medication?
1: Well, I had had a pretty extensive history of trauma from childhood uh, that I think just because of the way the mental health system was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, nobody had ever mentioned trauma to me in any way.
0: You mean like family based trauma?
1: Yes, family based trauma. I was adopted. Um, which I think is inherently traumatic because I don't think we were designed to be taken away from our mothers at birth. And then, you know, some parental divorce, uh, some other exposure to some violence that just I think led to some underlying anxiety. Um, And it was that anxiety that manifested itself when I got divorced in the year 2000. And when I got divorced, it was very, very traumatic and very upsetting. And I was actually studying uh, with a friend of mine that I was in grad school with getting my PhD. And she noticed I was really agitated and upset and said, hey, I've got this medicine, clonopin, I take that relaxes me when I get super stressed. Why don't you take half of one of these tablets? And, And I did. And as anybody that has taken a benzodiazepine knows that within 10 to 20 minutes, you get pretty profound relief if you're having anxiety. And for me, it felt like letting the air out of a balloon that had been full for many, many years. So, you know, I thought I'd found a miracle. I thought I'd found something that could remedy a lifelong uh, of anxious suffering. Um, little did I know uh, that this was a Trojan horse, and it was going to sneak its way in and cause much more damage than the original problem of the anxiety that I was treating. Um, so, I started taking a daily you know, dose of Klonopin, you know, doctor was on board. You know, I never thought twice about it.
0: And my expectation hearing that is that it probably wasn't too difficult to get that doctor to prescribe that.
1: Not at all. They were more than happy to prescribe it. And, and I think that's one of the ironies that I learned in this is that the pharmaceutical companies have done an amazing job of marketing. And some of that marketing is applied to doctors. And doctors truly believe that the more modern medicines are safer than the older medicine. So a medicine like Klonopin is viewed much more positively than say a medicine like Valium. But the problem is, is that what I understand now is that Klonopin is dramatically more potent and powerful of a medicine than Valium. Is. The doctors, the only place I really hold the doctors liable at this point is for not listening to their patients. I don't think the knowledge base is out there, um, it's emerging, but I just don't think There's mainstream knowledge out there quite yet about the catastrophic potential of of, of taking psychiatric drugs. I mean, I truly believe they want to help us with whatever issue we're sitting across them with. But unfortunately, they've been so programmed by a system that views these medicines like magic bullets.
0: Yeah. I mean, you were talking about the sort of demarcation line between older drugs and newer drugs. And what comes to my mind is Prozac kind of being that, um, you know, pre-Prozac, it was thought to be very risky to prescribe drugs of that kind. The risks were, were too heavy. Right. And then I think it went just as far in the other direction as you're describing to where people just think these are, as you just said, magic pills and the risk of harm is minimal. And as we've gone through the past 30 years, we've realized that the risks of harm from these modern medications are are somewhat probable.
1: Well, I think it's one of the paradoxes of psychiatry, which is they look at depression and anxieties as these horrific lifelong chronic illnesses that are debilitating and impact every part of a person's life that we can treat with these benign safe medicines that actually have no impact. And... it it feels completely contradictory. We have this severe illness that we need to treat, but we can treat it with benign safe medicines. Well, what I think is really happening is is we have trauma-based reactions that are being treated by very potent, powerful medications. And back to that silver bullet idea, I think that's another place where doctors have kind of fallen into a a blind spot, which is the idea that when a medication is out of your body, that that somehow means whatever changes have occurred in your body are suddenly remedied or back to the original where they were before the medicine was introduced and i always use the analogy of a bullet you know i can get shot and it can go through me and i can have no bullet in me anymore. but i still have a, a bullet wound i still have an injury i saw something that needs to heal and i think that that's one of the places where medicine has kind of not been able to connect the dots yet that if we're treating what you claim to be severe illnesses with very potent, powerful medicines. And we have to accept the fact that these very pow- you know, powerful, potent medicines have, have side effects and adverse reactions. I think that's the dilemma too those that medicine in a way bypasses or inhibits the body's natural ability to do what it was designed to do. And I think psychiatry is kind of the chief offender of that, which is our emotions are hardwired into our DNA and have been passed down through thousands and millions of years of evolution to communicate with each other, to ask for help, to say we're safe, or unsafe, you know, to get resources we need, to communicate love and connection so we stay in social groups to stay safe. And when you take psychiatric medicines, they're very numbing and they're very detaching from, from that very core essence of who you are, which is the very basic problem solving process. You know, I think of depression as keeping people safe. You know, if we think about when is an animal most at risk in the wild a mammal is most at risk in the wild when it sleeps so what's the absolute first thing that gets disrupted in probably 80 percent of people that end up in a general practitioner or a psychiatric office is sleep disturbance insomnia consequences of that and then what's the second most dangerous place or time for a mammal in the wild is when they stop to eat and think about all the primary problems that get people into psychiatrists and medical doctors offices again that are related to overeating or undereating so it's all primary mammalian processes we have that we've pathologized as illnesses because again if we look at depression if I'm a social creature and the social environment is attacking me or making me feel unsafe well depression actually helps me because depression creates a primary behavioral manifestation of isolation well guess what if i'm isolated nobody can hurt me emotionally at that moment but the problem is is that i'm cut off from the very things that can heal me at that moment which is social connection and then we put psychiatric medicines in that are numbing and not only do they disconnect us from the very things that could help us but i think they cause us to send Inaccurate emotional responses to things because they're altering our emotional responses. And then that creates tons of confusion between two animals that are trying to communicate with each other. And I think that mental health switched from what's wrong with you is the primary question now, instead of what happened to you. And what happened to you is 99.9% while you're sitting across from any medical practitioner is because of experiences. And I think that the mental health system has forgotten when we were mammals. And that when mammals are scared or threatened, we all go through the same steps that our nervous system has built in to keep us safe.
0: And I want to get into your background in psychiatry. uh, But one thing I want to address quickly before we do that, is you use a very specific adjective, injured. And I'd like you to kind of elaborate on that, why you use that word and what it means in terms of your own experience.
1: Well, I think that when I started on this journey, when I, when I first started taking these medications, um, and I think we've all been brought up to believe that medications are safe. And I think we've also been brought up to believe that somehow the body knows, oh, that's medicine, this is good for me. I'm going to welcome and accept it into my body. I don't think that's what happens. I think basically any medicine creates basically a trick that creates what we decide are are, are symptoms we want, which we would call relief. But the problem is is that, again, back to the marketing of of what the drug industry has been able to do is that any adverse effect or side effect is labeled an adverse effect or side effect. there's no such thing. There's, there's just effects. Okay? Medicines have effects. The marketing companies have decided, well, these are the effects we like, and these are the effects we don't like. So we're going to call the effects we don't like side effects. Okay? And then we're going to call the effects we like the outcome of the, the mechanism of the medicine. So what I've learned on this journey is that what happened to me is that when I took these medicines, they caused a neurochemical response in my brain That was an injury that my brain became injured. It altered how my brain worked. And I look at these medicines not as medicines, but neurotoxins. They have toxic potential for some of us, not all of us. For some people, the actual toxicity and, and the effects are desirable for them. You know, if I'm going through a horrible time, being numb for a little bit of period of time can be very helpful. But if I can't shut that numbness off or it becomes more permanent, then it becomes very problematic or if I can't get off the meds. Um, But I look at it like an injury, like basically that my brain and my nervous system more specifically, not just my brain, my nervous system, which is my entire being um, was very damaged by not only taking the benzodiazepines, but I went to a a, a detox um, because I was so sick on the medicine and desperate, and they said they could get me off, and they took me off a milligram and a quarter of clonopin in five days. And what that basically did was, was electrically shock certain set of neurotransmitters in my brain that are responsible for keeping me calm. And so, when that part of my brain was hijacked and no longer functioning correctly, it was as if my brain had the accelerator pushed down to the floor, but there were no brakes. So if you imagine what that feels like neurochemically in a person, it feels like you're agitated and restless and plugged into the wall or into the sun or into a nuclear power plant because there's just unchecked raging energy in your body. More specifically with the akathisia for me was emanating from my spine feeling like my spine was attuning for vibrating all the time and emanating intense agitation and restlessness that because it was coming from the core of who i was was agitating every cell in my body which made it impossible to relax i mean my mantra with somebody who was fortunately keeping me alive during that process was no calm i feel no calm there was no calm in my body
0: Well, two questions there. Uh, How quickly did you discern that injury upon taking the medication? And then the description you're giving there of akathisia, is that something that you were going through in the course of taking the medication or was that in the withdrawal?
1: Okay, so the second question, it was both. And what had happened, I think, is because I'd been on and off benzodiazepines previously, my brain had kind of been already Injured, what I'd say at a, at a subclinical degree, meaning that there was an injury, but the symptoms had not started to emerge, right? or at least dramatic symptoms had not started. So when I reintroduced the benzes again this, this last time, it was if the pump had been primed. You know, I was ready kind of to go over that tipping point. And once I cross over that tipping point, it's like Humpty Dumpty. Once he falls off the wall, it takes an enormous amount of time to get him back up on the wall and get that nervous system back intact, functioning correct.
0: What period of time occurred there you know, when you recognized the injury?
1: That last exposure, it was fast. I mean, I'd only taken 16 total milligrams of clonopin, averaging maybe a quarter milligram to a half milligram every three or four days. And even then I didn't understand half-lives and clonopin has a long half-life of up to 50 hours. So that means it takes 250 hours to get out of your system. That's more than 10 days. So if I'm taking it every three or four days, it's actually never leaving my system completely. Um, And I got dependent again on just that short term use and then rapidly. And I think that's when the cumulative damage kind of came to the forefront. Rapidly then, um, the symptoms increased. The akathisia came for the first time. I started pacing. um, I couldn't sit still. I was agitated. I started developing severe suicidal ideation. Unfortunately, I learned a very sad thing, is that if you're injured on this journey, it can always get worse. If you do things that basically exacerbate the injury, um, the symptomatology can increase dramatically and that's what happened to me.
0: Before I ask my next question, uh, I just want to get a timeline here because I think the story as you were telling it begins about 20 years ago.
1: Correct. So my first exposure to benzodiazepines was shortly after New Year's Eve of 2000. Um, and I took Clonopin for a couple of years then and that's when I started after a couple of years noticing I was having some memory issues and I and and I stopped and and, and I suddenly got a lot worse and I and I actually found a neurologist in, in the year 2000 that said you need to go back on the benzos that's that's what's causing these symptoms and taper but he gave me no indication of how to taper so i probably did a very rapid and you know haphazard taper off of two milligrams of clonipin it probably took me four months maybe three months and it was very symptomatic but i got off you know i didn't lose you know i was able to work i was able to socialize um and i you know at that point i just believed that if i just took it regularly, that would be the issue. If I took it every once in a while, it would be an issue. And I went years without really taking it. And then in 2013, a lot of life stress, and I actually ended up taking Cipro, which is a uh, fluoroquinolone antibiotic, and that caused some neuropsychiatric side effects, which were insomnia and agitation, which prior to that, I had no concept uh, that antibiotics had any psychoactive properties. And now that I've, I've, I've done my own research, a lot of them have very psychoactive properties. And not only that, but often have very powerful interactions with other medications also. So I, I, I took fluoroquinolone and that agitation started the insomnia started. So I called my primary and I said, look, could you just give me 20, or actually I asked for 10, one milligram tablets, just so I had something on hand if I needed to sleep. And she gave me 20 because obviously she <laughs> didn't view it as a dangerous drug or anything that you know she needed to be cautious with and then it was you know like i said a few months into that just taking it every three or four days less than prescribed um when i started to get the the really bad adverse effects
0: and the cipro would have been a short-term thing correct 10 days i think it was yeah but initially that combination was very bad for you
1: very bad and i think the other thing too is that the fluoroquinolones and benzodiazepines they compete at the same receptor in the brain. So what that means is you got two drugs fighting to occupy the same place, and the fluoroquinolone sometimes will make the benzos go away. And so you've got people used to benzos and they go away, immediately they're thrown into withdrawal. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't know this interaction. So when the withdrawal starts and the patient starts exhibiting, Symptoms that look similar to the symptoms they were originally treated for, then they are labeled as, as, as an emergence or re emergence or a worsening, then uh, again, of their mental illness, which can lead then to a cascade of more or more medication.
0: You made mention of a friend who helped you through what you were going through. Can you tell me about that?
1: Okay. So, first off, um, I had two people and I met them both
0: online
1: and they not only were the greatest people for the time they they helped me but one of them is one of my closest friends now
0: you met them online in the context of struggling correct you were seeking help seeking help seeking support
1: there's nothing out there you know this has really been a an organic thing that's grown out of need um that there are you know groups like benzo buddies and surviving antidepressants and the benzodiazepine information coalition and things like that that have emerged from this and are really the the leading groups, you know, advocating for more informed consent and better education of doctors and generally more acceptance that this problem exists. uh, And is something we need to really be looking at, you know, systemic.
0: And in seeking that help at that time, obviously you were online and you were doing research about it. Was was that kind of your first indication that, oh, this is something where I'm not alone and there's well-developed research and anecdotal information that, you know, I'm on something that is dangerous.
1: Right. I think I knew that because of my own, I mean, I think the, the blessing I had was that I am so educated about this stuff and I would at least heard the word akathisia <laughs> before. I just didn't really understand what it meant and understand conceptually, theoretically, how it would manifest itself. And that's something that I think is incredibly important for people's survival in this, is whether or not they have the insight to know what's going on. Because um, I think once people know what's going on, it can at least reduce some of the potential for gaslighting, the potential for self-doubt, the potential for any of these things that can push people to suicide. You know, and that's one of the main things that I'm trying to do in my advocacy and work is find ways I think doctors do wanna learn. And I wanna find ways for them to learn. You know, and I do believe that doctors want to help people and I want to find ways to give them the knowledge and the wisdom so they can find what they're seeing. I think every person that ends up in an ER or an outpatient or inpatient psychiatric office or or, or hospital, the first thing that needs to be assessed is their level of agitation and restlessness. And and attributed to medication, not attributed to mental illness. You know, ironically, when I taught Psychopathology to master's level students, the very first rule out for every single mental illness is: Are these symptoms first able to be explained by a medication? And for some reason, that's become the last rule out when it should be the first. The very first thing anybody should ask when somebody reports agitation or us, you know, restlessness is: What medicines are you taking? Has anything changed? Have any doses changed? Have any been added or removed? It should be the very first thing that's assessed in every emergency room. I would not be talking to anybody right now if I didn't have those two people, I'd be dead because everybody else in my life had abandoned. And that's one of the tragedies of this is that people end up in life and death situations completely dependent on people they've met on the internet. I would have killed myself. Because every day I would talk to these two women for five, six, seven hours, screaming, I'm gonna kill myself, I'm gonna, and they're like, no, you're not, no, you're not. And just that steady reassurance and the connection to another human, it it kept me alive. And that is the only treatment we have right now for any of these injuries is social support, and love, and safety, and, and basic needs being met. And, and that's if If, if anybody listening takes anything from this to that, love the person you know, that's going through this, support the person that's going through this, believe them, because they're telling you the truth about what they're experiencing. Chronic apathesia is unbearable. And what i really needed was my family and friends to step up and they didn't they rejected me and, and not only rejected me but but active i like to call it actively plotted my murder in the sense that anyone that they spoke to that offered to help me was was dramatically and very aggressively discouraged from doing it and so that's why i say they actively plotted my murder and. I'm about to move home in a couple months where I lived before this happened. And I want to raise money and awareness for what happened. And I'm going to create a fundraiser for me. And what I'm going to call it is the Chris Page Memorial. But I lived because I lived. And most people that went through what I went through don't. And I think I'm here for a reason. And that reason is to make a difference and prevent this from happening. We have too many people focused on trying to scare people or use that as a way or or be very angry at doctors or very angry at the medical system. I understand the anger, the anger is valid and reasonable, but it's not how we're gonna make change. The only way we're gonna make change is to find common ground with the very industry and professions that we want to understand what we experience. And I truly believe they want this knowledge. Every article I read on akathisia talks about they want the knowledge. It's just nobody has ever really had the knowledge to conceptualize that this is a movement disorder with severe movement issues, but it's also a subjective, horrific, tortuous, suicide-inducing problem that when you combine the two, leads to incredibly catastrophic outcomes.
0: I'd like you to elaborate, if you could, if you will, on the active plotting of your murder, in your words. Because what I'd like to know is, you know, what was the basis of those reactions and what was the manifestation? I mean, what were the actions that people were taking at that time and what was it based on?
1: Well, I think for me and for a lot of people that go through this, I had anxiety issues. So I used to drink, you know, so. What happens is if anybody that had any pre-existing alcohol or any, you know, if they smoke pot or anything like that, um, immediately that's where the, the, the labeling becomes. And then they go into a very 12-step modality of don't enable this
0: person. So they've made up their mind what ails you. Yeah, they they put me into a certain basket, you
1: know, and and, and I'm gonna stay in that basket until I get better. And what the problem then is it creates the ultimate horrible double bind. And what a double bind is, is when we have two choices and neither of them are good, is that we desperately want to prove we want to get better because we want to get better, okay? But there's no treatment. And then, you know, family and friends will suggest doctors and things like that. And you say, from a self-preservation perspective, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to take that med. And then they say, see, you don't want to get better. You're refusing treatment. Why would I help somebody that's refusing to get better? And then you create this cycle where the person just spirals, losing more social support, unable to change because they're neurologically injured. You know, imagine somebody with a compound fracture. The bone is sticking out of their leg and their social support system is yelling at them, get up, get up. And when you can't get up, they're going, see, you don't want to get better. And then somebody offers me a crutch because my leg's broken and they kick the crutch away. They don't want me to even have the crutch to get up. And they will kick you while you're down. And I think that if we really want to make a change in this movement, we have to show families how to help people. We have to also show families that it's okay to be scared and angry, but it's not okay to reject and abandon. Families and social support hold the cure for this, the outcome cure. We can't cure the symptoms. There's no cure for that yet. we can keep people alive because the number one thing that i have seen in six and a half years of going through this is the people that don't make it that have chronic long-term akathisia the number one reason isn't the akathisia it's the lack of social support or the abject like i said plotting murder of their social support
0: system yeah, and, and you've identified the sort of two strands, people who it just comes out of nowhere and it affects them in a very short period of time and they often do take their lives. Yeah. And the longer-term chronic issue. And I know that in the former, uh, the family members, friends, you know, they're, they're just at a loss. Right. What's happened to my loved one? Right. And it's not necessarily that they don't want to help. They can't help because they don't know what's going on.
1: Well, I think another thing that happens is you just nailed it, which is they're scared. They want us to be okay. They love us, but they also become very normal humans, which is when humans feel helpless and it makes them anxious and upset. They need to get rid of the anxious and upset. So they go, Oh, it's not about me being unable to help you anymore. It's about you not willing to get better. And so, initially i think they feel that feeling of oh god i wish i could help but when they recognize or or, or get at least in touch with their own helplessness and powerlessness that can be very hard for people and then it manifests then as almost aggressiveness towards the other person and i think there's very very primal mammalian things that are going on here too which is we become our energy changes so dramatically It's almost like if you take two magnets that are attracted and then you flip one, all of a sudden they they can't go together anymore. And I think when our energy shifts into that frantic, hysterical, crazed apathesia energy, we just naturally repel people around us. So it's almost like nature is so evil at that moment because the very things we need, we're we're sending this energy out that's repelling and pushing away that, that support that is. In, intrinsic to our survival. The other thing I think about is if you think about like we become a burden to the pack, and and there's Eskimo legend about elderly people being left on the ice floe because they were just a burden to the rest of the pack, and that's what we feel like when we're going through akathisia We feel like we've been left on the ice pack by ourselves to freeze to death, and we just need somebody to come and thaw us out.
0: What happened next in your story?
1: I come out of the detox, and I go, they put me in an outpatient program, and I'm completely out of my mind. And I end up in the psych ward. And it's kind of one of the other things I'm going to write is the idea of two keys. I used to be the one that had the key at the psych ward. I used to be the one that would open the elevator and open the doors, and I had the access. And all of a sudden, I was the one in the garment being led around with somebody else with the key. I want to talk about a little humble pie? Um, but also an incredibly learning, powerful learning experience in terms of, empathy. you know, anybody that ever ends up in a psych ward, probably the antithesis of a place that helps people feel better emotionally. Um, so I, I end up in, you know, I end up in the, in the psych ward, get out in a couple days, somehow fly home. And then it just, it
0: just starts to increase. I go from pacing a
1: few hours a day to more hours a day. Um, and to did you remain
0: on medication throughout this?
1: They put me on, they, you know, that's another real joy of the detox is um, is they took me off um, a minor tranquilizer, uh, which is Klonopin, and they put me on a major tranquilizer, which is Serequil, so I upgraded my tranquilizer. And then they, they added three other meds, um, two of which I got off, and the other two I'm on will probably take another seven to eight years of tapering. So this entire process is going to cost me about 15 years of my life if I make it through it in one piece. Pretty optimistic I will. And that's another thing that detoxes love to do is they love to give you support meds. You know, they I was going to
0: say, it seems ironic that you're going through a detox and you're getting more medication. Well, well
1: imagine if you were an alcoholic and you went to a detox and, you, and they said, all right, and you came out taking cocaine, marijuana, crystal meth, and ecstasy. It, w- it, would, be, it would seem... So absurd. And that was one of the most poignant moments where I really thought, the first time I really thought about ending my life was the first night after the detox. I'm in an outpatient dorm room, basically, looking at my medicine counter with like six new bottles. And because I knew what I knew, I was like, oh, that's a decade to take, right? And so that's another thing. If there's any, I've gotten a few gifts from this, and one gift is the ability to live in 24 hour intervals. Because if I say, "Oh God, I got eight more years of taper," and I could get very upset. Instead, I'm like, "Hey, today's a good day." I've only, and that's how I survived the three years of pacing too. Was I had one simple deal: I won't kill myself today. And as long as I stuck to that deal, I made it to the next day. Doesn't mean I didn't come incredibly close, probably a couple hundred times. So I make it home. I shut my practice down. I sell a business I have, I lose everything, my home, everything. I end up in Alaska with some people that were supposed to help me that ended up borderline abusing me and then kicking me out with full-blown akathisia 6,000 miles from home with nowhere to go. Um, Again, that's why social support is so essential. Um, I don't recommend homelessness and akathisia. And then I had to fly from Anchorage, Alaska to Chicago, or to Cleveland, but through Chicago. There's nothing more enjoyable than an eight-hour flight when you're pacing the entire time in the back galley. When the flight attendants, thank God I had cool flight attendants, say to me, I don't think your medicine's working. Um, And I'm continuously looking at the exit door to see if I can pop it and just kind of jump off the plane. But kind of had to follow the Dexter rule, no innocent people get hurt. So I make it to Cleveland where I did have one friend who agreed to help me and then him and I drove to Florida. There was another person who agreed to help me for a period of time. It was kind of the underground railroad. I had you know, people that would take me to different areas of my journey. And then just in the last couple months, I'm going to be able to move back to West Palm Beach, which is where I never wanted to leave. And I guarantee the first night I'm in my new place, I'm going to cry because I never thought that I would be able to have this full circle occur.
0: And you mentioned a three-year period there where you were, you know, actively suffering the effects of akathisia. Yes.
1: I stopped like actively pacing every day,
0: probably
1: spring of 2017.
0: And so how would you describe the last three years?
1: a uh, steady improvement. You know, I, I took a nap yesterday. I, that, that was not something that happened for a long, long time. The way I, I say it is that my nervous system is 80% healed, but I'm 100,000% me. I'm happier than I've ever been. I told my mom the other day, I'm like a puppy. You know, I'm like wagging my tail because I feel so happy to be in my
2: body again. Because when you have akathisia, that's another thing is that you're not claustrophobic, you're claustrophobic of being in your body. It's more like cleaver where we want to get away from, from ourselves and you can't. And that's why it's just so tortuous. But now I can get away from that. That feeling's gone. The agitation's gone. I'm calm. I'm going to get off this interview and I'm going to go watch TV and listen to music. I feel connected to the universe again. Music I was completely disconnected from. Laughter I was completely
0: disconnected. So what would you have done several years ago after this interview? paced?
2: Uh, I wouldn't have been able to do the interview. I mean, you, couldn't, you couldn't have that, sat that, there. That, and. I could, no, I mean, and, and that's another thing that's so upsetting to me is we have people even in our, in our community putting out information that says that akathisia is controllable. And when you put out information that says akathisia is controllable, every single person that's a support system to somebody suffering from akathisia will wield this now like a cudgel. And beat the person over the head saying you can, you should be able to control this 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 website says, you should be able to control this. And then when you can't, then you lose all social support. So that's another thing that is so upsetting to me about our community is that we're cannibals that we actually kill each other. Because we're more focused on our message being right than about having accurate messages getting out there to a community of people that are suffering. It's not controllable. You know, if it was controllable, no one would kill themselves. Okay? If it was controllable, there would be no reason for you and I to be having this conversation. And that's what people need to understand because then it takes away the responsibility. It takes away the, the need to control another person by saying you are choosing to do this. That is the absolute antithesis of the message that somebody with akathisia needs to hear. They need to hear, I know you can't control this, and I love you, and I support you, and I'm going to keep you safe until you can control it." That's the message we need to be giving people.
0: I'd like to talk about the intersection of this condition where the personal and professional met for you and when you started to work on this in your research and what you've done with that and and what you hope to do.
1: So it took me about four years after the detox to become barely functional, where I could work a couple hours a week. And then as I've healed, opportunities have presented themselves. And what I see my job now is to create the bridge between the anecdotal wisdom i have and a whole community of people have and the medical i would i would call it ignorance or just they haven't been able to see it yet if i can bridge those that's the goal because i think that you can't understand what this feels like unless you've experienced so for me, conveying my story to others that haven't experienced it, I don't think it has a huge impact. You know, I think my story is very valid for people that have gone through it to validate their own experiences. Um, but I think what people need to understand are things that they can relate to. And I see my job also as to be somebody putting information out there that can bridge these so that people have something they can reference to show a family member that engages the family member instead of repels the family member. And I think, you know, education and just showing that, that that we are injured and scared, and all we need is love and safety and support. And if you give us that, we will hang in there. And we all want the same thing, which is that we all survive these things. The other thing, if anybody listening is experiencing this. I'm so much better now in my life than I've ever been. So please use me as somebody that's pulling you towards health. I got you. Right? My nervous system's healed. Use mine. Okay, You're going to get through this. We need social support systems to echo that same message. Because if we could just even shift the social support, we would dramatically reduce the suicide.
0: You made reference earlier to sort of an overdiagnosis of akathisia, but you've also pointed to underdiagnosis of akathisia as something to be concerned about.
1: You know, there's a couple of things. There's kind of what I talked about before that, that there can be mild prodromal manifestations of what I would call like pre And if doctors would learn to look for that, that agitation, that restlessness, like I said, that, that might not be at the at threshold yet where the objective movement has started. But if we don't nip it there, it's going to lead to that. Um, I think because doctors have been trained just to look for the motor restlessness, they, they don't go further. So no motor restlessness, no akathisia. They need to be checking again for that agitation and restlessness. Something I mentioned earlier before too is that we need to communicate with patients in, in verbiage and terminology. That they can say, Oh, yeah, that's it. You know, does it feel like ants inside of you? Does it feel like you want to rip your spine out? Does it feel like you, you just have tons of energy? Giving them, you know, really tangible ways you know, to express it so they can say, Yeah, that's it. That's a good way to express it to me. Akesthesia is just a word like tact, okay. But if everybody started telling me that three-legged armadillos were cats, cat would become a meaningless word then. So when people say is inner vibrations and fatigue, and all these things that don't connect to akathesia, we're making akathesia into a meaningless word. We need it to be a word that when I say it to a medical professional, the person that can actually help me at that moment, they say, yep, I know exactly what you're saying. That's a movement problem that's caused by agitation and restlessness. So how bad is your agitation and restlessness? That is how we have to do it. And again, I'm not denying that people that don't have akathisia are suffering horribly. They are. They just don't have akathisia. Akathisia is a simple equation. Restlessness and agitation that create movement. Because agitation without movement is agitation. If I'm in my car and I'm stuck in traffic and I'm really agitated because I can't get to my job on time and I'm punching the window and I'm screaming, I could look very agitated, but that's not Okay, I would have to get out of my car and start moving around or I wouldn't be able to sit in my seat in the car. That's akathisia. But if we learn to see the warning signs, the subclinical levels of agitation and irritability and fear and these subjective manifestations that are basically warning signs, if we learn to see these warning signs, we can avoid people getting akathisia but I'll see people saying, I have really bad akathisia It causes me fatigue and lying down. Okay. That would be the equivalent of me saying when I have asthma attacks, I take deep breaths, because fatigue and lying down is the antithesis of akathisia. Okay, akathisia is the inability to lie down, the inability to be fatigued. When I was pacing thirteen hours a day, my body was fatigued, but there was no fatigue. There was only chemical adrenaline and energy coursing through every cell in my body. And so we need this to be conceptualized accurately so we can talk to the very people that can solve the problem, which are
0: doctors and researchers. Do you think that the active phase of akathisia, uh, long-term as it was, is fully behind you at this point?
1: I think it is always there. As a gentle or not so gentle reminder, if I'm a dumbass. And what I mean by that is if I if I drank alcohol, guarantee I'd have a visit from my old friend akathisia You know, if I ate really crappy food, I could probably get there. And I'm tapering medicine right now. If I sped my taper up, that's a guarantee. I would be back to. It's like my helium voice, you know, oh my god, I good day oh my god, you know, like high pitch, frantic. Now I've got my very nice, deep, calm voice again because I'm back in my body, a place I did not want to habitate for many years. And and you know, and, and it's just that again. I'm calm, but it's there, you know, it's there. If I did something dumb, I know it it would it could come back.
0: If you'd like to find out more and get the best information about this important topic of akathisia. The MIST website is a great place to start. If
1: you go to our website, the section that says what is akathisia, you will see the two MIST videos as well as we have an educational PDF that you can print off. We also are on Facebook and Twitter. If you like this podcast, learn more about akathisia and just send it to your contacts. And this is the way we spread our message. And I hope that people will really look at the signs and symptoms of akathisia. They're listed in the videos, listed on the website.
0: That's MIST founder Wendy Dolan. You've been listening to the Akathisia Stories podcast. If you'd like to share your own story for this podcast, please email studio.c.chicago at gmail.com. And please share this podcast and subscribe. MIST would like to wish everyone a healthy, happy new year. Through increased akathisia awareness, we are closing in on one of our goals, to make akathisia a household word. Together we are making a positive difference and we appreciate your ongoing support. I'm Andy Miles, and I'd like to thank Chris Page for his time and candor. And I'd like to thank you for listening.